0: Happy Easter! Yeah, man, good to see you. We celebrate Jesus with you. I can hardly wait to get to heaven, man. What a party that's going to be, man! That's right. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited because I have the privilege, just like you, to live for a God who is alive. There's so many people caught up in these false religions where their leader died and he's still in the grave and out of all of that Jesus is the only one that came back alive not only that but he promised to come back again he's coming back again and he's coming for a church a bride without spot and wrinkle and so we sang about that that Jesus is our champion and he's giving us the victory he doesn't want you to walk and live your life in a roller coaster way of experiencing victory and then defeat, victory, defeat. Let me tell you, that's not fun. For all of you that have been on roller coasters, you know that's not fun, right? You like level ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. So um, you heard we're going to have a child dedication Well, um, congratulations to Robbie and Ariel Custer on the birth of their daughter, Darcy. Um, Last Wednesday, last Wednesday. So uh, yeah, Robbie's here, he's representing the Custer family. Yeah, and you can bump elbows with him on the way out, man. How about it? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Easter. And because it's Easter, we do Easter giveaways. Um, for those of you that are veterans of Life Church, you know that's kind of an annual thing. We love to give stuff away. And um, we've got this nifty arrangement with trumpets, a couple trumpets here. And they smell good. And we've got some uh, Linder uh, chocolates, man. They're good. And then the. Um, the Sanders small batch wonders. It's good. I good explanation there. Sea salt caramel. So you have your choice. Um, that we're going to submit a question. We've got eyes in the sky, and the first person standing with the right answer, you get to pick which one you want. And just for uh, keep it simple, you can pick it up after the gathering today. Is that cool? Everybody good with that? All right. All right. So everybody ready? Have your seat belts unbuckled? Sure. <laughs> that's that's encouraging. Okay, do we have everybody's watching, right? Good. Good. All right. Here we go. You have to stand, remember. Who was the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection? Oh, here, here? For, okay. Yes, yes, right. So so, Leah, what do you want? No, just just stay there. Which one? The flowers. okay, so the flowers are gone. All right. All right. Who wrote the popular Easter hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today? Remember, it's popular. It's a popular hymn. Bill? Who? No. 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 The popular Easter hymn. Robbie? Nope. No. Okay, now, now we're guessing. It's, uh, it's Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley. All right, who narrates the movie The King of Kings? Man, I, I didn't think this would be too bad. Too. Um. Nobody. Okay. Orson Welles. Um, <laughs> I, knew, but I didn't stand. <laughs> 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 I know. I know. I know. What was the name of the murderer released instead of Jesus by Pilate? I think it was here. Yeah, John? What? Yes. All right. So which one, John? Chocolates? These guys right here? Okay, so now we have the last. All right. All right, good. Um, The most popular jelly bean flavor among kids is... What are they called though? Cherry. Cherry. That's it. Right. Right. So you get the sea salts, Joy. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Great. Great. Hey everybody, it's Easter as you know, and if you're a guest, um, there should be a blue card uh, sitting by you. You fill that information out, bring it to guest central following the gathering and you get a gift bag and It's a good way of putting a name with a face. If you're watching online, thanks for watching today. Happy Easter to you. You can go to the uh, lifechurchmh.com page, and uh, there's a guest form to fill out there, and uh, we'd love for you to fill that information out as well. So those of you in the auditorium watching, uh, pull up your notes for uh, the talk. It's an outline um, given on purpose so we can track as we go along. And that's always fun to do—to stay on track instead of wandering in the wilderness. Hey, uh, before we roll, I, I just look at this image of of the empty tomb. Um, uh, for those of you that have gone to Israel and gone to Jerusalem, uh, the tomb of Joseph Arimathea. Uh, this is where they believe—historians believe—where they put Jesus' body. And um, (laughs) notice the grave clothes. Uh, Jesus came out of those grave clothes, through the grave clothes. And the stone, that 4,000-pound stone was removed, uh, not so Jesus could get out. It wasn't like he was knocking on the stone. Hey, let me out of here. No, he came out ahead of time. He went through it. They moved the stone so that witnesses could go in and verify the fact that Jesus was not there. Very cool, very cool. And uh, we've had the opportunity to go into that uh, grave site, and I can tell you Jesus is not there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's great news. So um, yeah, for those of you, man, you've, you know, you put on a bucket list, I want to get to Israel one day, man, I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. Um, going to the place where Jesus lived and walked, etc. So the empty tomb. What's that about the gospel? The gospel, which is good news. I'm so glad for that too, man. Not only is Jesus alive; it's not bad news, but it's good news that He gives that gift of salvation freely for those who put their trust in Him. Why? Because He wants you and I to spend eternity with Him. In Romans 6.23, this is a summary of the good news that the wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Free gift. Did you notice that? Notice it says gift. It doesn't mean you have to earn it. You don't have to pay for it. It's a gift. Jesus paid it all. That's some more good news, man. It's a, it's a free gift, and it's, he's extending it to you and I. The incredible love of God, and we sang about that moments ago. Now, it's possible that you're unfamiliar with the Easter story. Um, there was a tribe in the jungles of East Asia, they had never heard about Jesus, they had never heard about the gospel. In this particular tribe, they live their lives in fear of death. And you can imagine, man, if you don't know Jesus, it's easy to fear death, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, one day, a group of missionaries arrived with the Jesus film. And that tells the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. This film was produced back in 1979. It's been translated into 1,500 languages. Hundreds of millions of people have been drawn to Christ through the showing of this film. When Debbie and I were in uh, uh, Guinea, Africa, uh, John Erickson, uh, hopefully who will be here this summer, uh, we would go with him into villages and he would set up a generator and show this film, man. Pretty cool. And that's going on all around the world. So... Imagine these folks never hearing about Jesus, never hearing about the gospel. Ben Patterson, in his book, Deepening Your Conversation with God, tells this story, that the tribe watched Jesus Christ heal the sick, bless children, um, teach the crowds, perform miracles, and man, the crowd was excited. They were fired up, man. But when Jesus was seized by the Roman soldiers, they became outraged. Yeah, they stood and they shouted at the screen. Can you imagine that? And when Jesus continued to suffer, they turned on the missionary operating the projector. They thought it was his fault. You know? Maybe he was responsible. And the missionary had to stop the film, explain that the story was not over. It's not over. And the people settled down Sat back on the ground, they held held their emotions in check and uh, the missionary turned the projector on where he had previously left off. But then came the crucifixion. They watched in horror as Jesus was forced onto the cross. They cried in agony with every blow of the hammer of that spike going into Jesus' body. The Lord's suffering was intense and then he died And that was more that the crowd could endure, man. They began weeping and wailing profusely. It became so loud that the missionary had to turn off the projector again. And once more, the missionary had to articulate to the crowd that, you know, the story's not over. This isn't the end. And then he turned the projector back on and then came the resurrection. And they watched again as the women came to the Lord's tomb bewildered to find the stone rolled away, and guess what, the tomb was empty. And in a flash, the angels were saying, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. And then Jesus shows up, smiling, and he says, peace be with you. Guess what happened, pandemonium, pandemonium set out, man. People jumped up, they were screaming, they were shouting, they were dancing. They celebrated as though it was the best news they ever heard. Of course, it was. The missionary, again, shut the projector up, but this time he didn't have to tell the people to calm down. He didn't have to because they just learned the greatest truth of all, that Jesus came to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. Death could not hold him, and on that third day, he jumped out of that tomb, and he's alive today walking up and down the streets of our lives, freeing those enslaved by fear itself. Now, here's the deal. For those of you that have heard that resurrection story over the years, yeah, it could become, yeah, I know that story. I've heard it before, no big deal. We kind of lose something, you know? Our hearts become hardened. We have to be careful to nurture Man, this tremendous day in world history. First Peter 1, 3, and 4, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven, and the future starts now. Yeah, it starts now. And so, yeah, one of the fundamental differences of Christianity with every other religion in the world is Man, you could, you could go to the founders of those religions and call the road Muhammad, you'd say here, he's in the grave. Moses, here, he's in the grave. Buddha, he's here. Confucius, yeah, he's here too. Jesus Christ, there's no answer, man. He's not in the tomb, he's not in the grave. And because he's not there, the tomb is empty. And that's what separates Jesus from every other religious leader in the world. And the cool thing is, friends, this is a historical fact. It wasn't done in in secret, you know. It wasn't done behind closed doors. It was wide open for the world. And if cable news could have been there, believe me, it would have been followed very closely. There's at least 15 historical references to Jesus meeting people after he came out of that grave, he spent 40 days on this planet before he ascended back to his father. And at one time he was with over 500 people speaking to them at one gathering. And so the greatest the greatest most important day in history Easter. And here's the question, do you believe that? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if you say yeah, well there's that's cool, that's cool. Um, but if you say no, you might feel a little uncomfortable, and you might say, you know what, I'm not sure. But we need to put you at ease today because guess what? You're in great company. You're in great company. Because through this talk today, you're going to realize that God gives permission for people to doubt. I want you to think about that. There were lots of people on that first Easter Sunday that weren't sure about the resurrection either. And we could start with the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the crew, all the way down to doubting Thomas, you know? So you're in good company, and it's okay. I want just to let you know it's okay to doubt. But don't stay in your doubt. Deal with it. Deal with it. Put it on the table and deal with it. That's what Thomas did. So, Jesus on the move, John chapter 20. We're going to read just two verses here and then press on. John chapter 20, verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid, there's that word fear again, afraid, of the Jewish leaders, and suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, which proved what Jesus said in Mark nine thirty one: the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of enemies. He will be killed. But three days later, he will rise from the dead, which is what he did. Father, thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you know everybody watching, listening right now, exactly what's going on in their life. Whether it's been a rough week, a month, a year, a good week, a good day, whatever the case may be, Lord, you you track with people because you love them. And that's why it's cool to be here today to celebrate the great news, Jesus, that you're alive, (laughs) You're, you're alive and you're not dead. Oh, man, that just gets us fired up. And so we thank you, Lord, even for those today that might be doubting, have questions about faith. Lord, we know that you care and that you're going to walk us through that whole process. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Number one in your notes, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, let's, let's make it a little more dramatic. Uh-oh. uh-oh. You know, uh-oh, man. Uh, so, so... When you were growing up, probably your brother told you, "Uh uh-oh, man, you're in trouble, you know. Wait till dad comes home from work, boy. You're in trouble, Uh uh-oh, you know. So, uh uh-oh, just kind of get your attention. In Mark 14, what's the uh uh-oh all about? on the way, Jesus told them on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, all of you will desert me. That's not great news. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, here he is already telling them, and he's told them tons before. And here he's telling them again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> to be raised from the dead. I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And Peter said to him, man, if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, hang on, Peter. I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you and all the others vowed the same. So they got behind Peter and said, no way, Lord, we'll never leave you. Well, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark fourteen fifty, then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. That's an uh-oh, isn't it? Yeah. Boy, that's, uh, that's, that's really a sad deal. Here's a, here's a picture of a couple of the disciples um, on the run. You know, you can see fear on their faces, panic-stricken, you know. Are they going to come for me next? This was not, uh, the last week of Jesus' life wasn't really good for, for the disciples. You, you, we really shouldn't be surprised <laughs> because prior to, the, to that time, the first three years weren't the greatest either. For these guys, these kind of showed, exposed their humanity. Jesus is having a last supper, you know, talking, establishing a new covenant. He tells the disciples, you know, this is what the the new covenant's going to look like. And guess what the disciples do? They start fighting amongst themselves, trying to position themselves to say, I'm the greatest disciple. I'm the greatest one. No, you're not. I am. Can you imagine that? That's an uh uh-oh, too. That must have really hurt Jesus, and he goes into the garden then and tells these guys to wait and pray. They fall asleep. Peter denies Jesus. Judas betrays him. Thomas doubts him. (laughs) There's some more uh uh-ohs there. And then at the garden, after Jesus was done praying, the authorities came and arrested him, and the disciples take off. They split they abandon Jesus, their leader. In fact, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem afterwards, and instead they go to the Sea of Galilee and they return to their profession of fishing, professional fishermen. They figured, man, we messed up so bad, there's no hope for us. Well, that wasn't the case. But you can imagine It's kind of the heartache of Christ, you know, spending, investing time with these men and they bail on them. But here's the thing, man, that's not the end of the story. Just like Friday is not the end of the story, right? Turn that projector back on in your life. And that's what God did, man. He turned the projector back on in the disciples' life and he invested in them again, saying, I'm not going to give up on you guys. You're going to be great men for the kingdom of God. And you may feel like a failure here today. Man, your, your spiritual life is, it has been a mess. It's, it, there's been casualties in the process and you think, man, God could never use me. Don't believe the lie. Turn the projector back on because Jesus wants to invest in you today. Which leads us to number two, any questions? Any questions? Mark 16, Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. And very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb and on the way they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? You ever ask questions like that? you know, the what if questions. What if I go to church and I don't get fixed, you know? I don't, don't, God doesn't do what I want him to do in my life. You know, what the what ifs. What if God doesn't help me in this situation? What if God doesn't bail me out of this problem, you know? That's another, uh, we fall into that Questions, asking questions, and these three ladies on the way to the tomb. You know, you think they would have hired two men in a truck? Can we meet you at the tomb? You know, we need you guys to move the stone because we want to. We want to put some burial spices on Jesus. They they didn't even think of calling anybody, and so they're they're just going by emotion here. You know. They saw Jesus die. They saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus put him into a grave in a hurry. They felt like they needed to get to him quick. (laughs) Who's going to do it? Who's going to roll the stone away? Sometimes we get caught up in in the what ifs of life. We worry about things we don't need to worry about. Have you noticed? 90% of things that we worry about never happen. Those things that wake you up at 2.59 in the morning, you know. Ha! (laughs) They don't happen. They don't happen. Man, we worry needlessly. That's what we need to. Ladies, all that worrying for nothing because the stone was rolled away. God took care of it. We, we trust the Lord. This is it. It's just a simple thing. My life is in God's hands. I'm trusting him to move the stones out of the way in my life. Those things that are obstacles to me, those things that are crippling me, those, those addictions that have a grip on me. I'm trusting the Lord, man. It's a good place to be. Mark does some cool things here. He identifies these three women with names, faces, as living witnesses to the fact that Jesus was alive. On the way to the grave, they weren't expecting Jesus to come out. And, uh, and when they come, boom, you know, with a heavy heart. I, I like what it says. They, they looked up. They looked up. So you know they had have been looking down, you know, discouraged. All hope is gone. But when they hit the grave, they looked up, and the stone had been rolled away. Roll away, roll away, roll away, all my burdens roll away. There's a song, something like that. That's I just destroyed it, but but there is a song. All my burdens. So what did they see? These ladies—they saw a young man dressed in a in a white robe, and he was, as Mark gets through that verse, identify him as an angel. He's an angel. He said, "Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead." Guess what? Here's some cool news. Jesus is out of the tomb, and he's coming after you. Thank you, Jesus. Ha! You know. When we know somebody's following us, let's just say we're in a car and we notice, man, somebody's been following me for the last five miles. Well, the police will tell you, go to the nearest police station, right? That's what they tell you. And pull in front and go into that station just to make sure everything's cool. And, and, and we kind of we, we can fear that adrenaline rush when we feel like we're being followed by somebody we don't know, who maybe is out to harm us. Let's flip it. Jesus is coming after us, not to hurt us, but to give us eternal life, to give us a purpose for living, to forgive our sins, to set our feet on solid ground. On Christ the Lord, the solid rock I stand. There's another song like that, then that. Boy. On Christ the Lord. Death could not hold him. Jesus comes at, man, I, I, and I, I can attest to that. When I was pushing against God as a young man, and Jesus kept coming after me, kept coming after me. He's coming after me because he loves me and he wants the best for my life. How cool it was to surrender to his grace, you know? Say so yes, Lord. Michelle Hardy was teaching her kindergarten Sunday school class years ago about the creation story. And after several weeks, she thought she'd have a little review, see how the kids were listening. And she asked them, what did God make on the first day? And they all said, light, light. And she said, what about the second day? And they said, sky, the sky in the class. You know, they got them both right. And then Michelle uh, asked the class, what happened on the third day? And this little boy, man, he was just so fired up. Full of enthusiasm, he shouted, Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) He got that right. Number three, Jesus comes to me. He came out of the tomb, man. He's coming to me. Look at verse 19 of John 20. This is where we're going to camp out now. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. The doors were shut. shut. The the doors were locked, bolted. These disciples are hiding. They're hiding. Uh, By now, they knew the Jewish leaders knew that the tomb was empty, and they thought, you know what? Uh, They're going to come for us next. We were part of Jesus' team. They're going to come looking for us. I'm sure there's spies out there. They know where we're at. Uh, They were fearing for their lives, no doubt. And guess what? In the midst of that chaos, fear, confusion, who shows up but Jesus? He shows up. So do you think these disciples are around the table, man? They just put some pizzas in the oven and they text Jesus, come and meet us, man. We're going to have some pizza. No, they didn't. They didn't ask Jesus to come. And isn't it true how often we go through life the same way? We go through confusion and through a crisis. We lock the door to protect ourselves. And some of us even lock God out. Jesus wants to come and be part of that problem that you're going through, that crisis that you're walking through. He wants to participate and show up. He's, he's there to think that God, present. he's everywhere all the time, every space, man, he is there. And this morning we prayed for the missionaries earlier before the gathering, in Africa, in Mexico, and in Europe. God is there. All around the world, people are celebrating Easter today because He's there. Jesus shows up. And here's the thing, man they had a roller coaster week, these disciples. You know, they went through the trial, the crucifixion, the burial of their leader you can imagine that these guys are emotionally spent, right? You know how that feels when you're spent. You're tapped out, man. You've got nothing left on the inside. They can't even get to sleep, man. They're worn out. And it says that they were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Why? Because they were, they were second-guessing themselves. Maybe we were wrong to follow Jesus for these past three years. Was Jesus who he claimed to be, you know, doubting, questioning, the uh uh-ohs again. What's going to happen? Does Jesus pull up in a military vehicle, you know, call in air support? Boom, take this building out, man. These guys are losers. No, 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 he doesn't do that. He shows up. He doesn't even knock on the door. He just walks through it. Oh, man. You can imagine. And what's he do? He pulls out his his notebook on everything the disciples did wrong. Hmm? You guys messed up big time. Number one, he encourages me, verse 19b, peace be with you. Notice that. Peace be with you. Right off the top. He doesn't pull out his gospel gun and blow these guys away. You're the uh-oh crowd, man. It's hopeless, man. It's bad for you. No, no, no. He doesn't do that. Peace be with you. Can you imagine whatever thing, whatever you're going through, imagine Jesus walking into your life and standing in front of you and say, peace be with you. Well, would that make a difference? Yes or no? Yeah, man. Woo! Jesus says, peace be with you. It's like, the storm raging around you, the waves calm down, the wind quiets, and suddenly you sense the very presence of God. That's, that's pretty good encouraging news, I guess. He didn't say, why did you guys leave me? Why did you abandon me? Where were you when I needed you most? Come on, guys, you know? We're so good at condemning, aren't we? Beating other people down to make ourselves look good? No, 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 no. He extends grace to them. Grace. Marvelous grace. Number two, he proves his love for me. Verse 20, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with, say it, joy. I've got the joy, 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 died down in my heart. Where? You guys are missing that online, by the way. The word joy literally means to rejoice exceedingly. Exceedingly. In other words, I've got joy. No, they're fired up. They're fired up. They can hardly contain it. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And Jesus, look at what he's saying. He, he shows them his, the scars on his hands. Check this you know, his picture right here. That's what he does, man. You, you guys are worried. You think I didn't come out of the grave here. It's me. Look, look at the scars on my body. Hmm? I'm proving to you I am who I said I was, that I would come out of that grave on the third day. That's why those guys were fired up. It's Jesus. He He, he kept his promise. What's Jesus doing? He's validating his identity. He's saying, guys, it's me. It's me. He didn't even need a name tag. Driver's license. They knew it was him. Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This is where people get it messed up. They think they have to clean up their act before God can forgive them. No, no, we come as we are. Amen. Just as I am. I, just as I am, I come. Let him clean me up. I can't clean me up. Right? I come. When while, he, you know, he died, he proved his love by sending Christ. Man, there's times... When you, when you understand the unconditional love of God, and I, I can tell you firsthand, I lived it, you know. I, I was there, I wasn't good enough, and God couldn't love me, and, and it paralyzed me spiritually. I did not walk in victory. But when I finally embraced, I confessed that sin, Lord, forgive me for not believing that you unconditionally love me and allow him to pour that into me. You know what that did? You talk about peace. I don't have to prove anything to anybody because I'm secure in the fact that God loves me. Amen. God loves me. And it, it's not on a merit badge. You know, you got to do this, this, and this for God to keep loving you. You read your Bible today, He's going to love you more. You go to church tomorrow, He's going to love you even more. No, no, no. He loves you to the max. To the max. Right where you're at. So he's proven his love. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Number three, he gives me purpose, verse 21. Again, he said, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Oh, boy. Here these guys are, you could say they're losers, are the uh uh-oh crowd, you know. They deserted, they bailed on Jesus. Jesus could have said, you're not going to get any spiritual pension from me, guys. It's over, you know. I'm going to put you out to pasture. There's no hope for you. No, he gives purpose. What's he saying? Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. In other words, Jesus was on a mission. He's saying, I'm giving a mission to you guys. I'm not done with you. I don't know about you. That sure encourages me. I know you guys made a bunch of mistakes. You didn't stay with me, nah, but I've got a plan for you. You're going to take this good news to the world. Jesus gives them a thumbs up. I'm believing in you guys, man. And they did. Philippians 2.15, go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God carry the light-giving message into the night so I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day when Christ returns. Isn't that good? Yeah. Woo! We get to do that. We have that privilege. We have a purpose bigger than ourselves, and that is to represent Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So let's do it. Number four, Jesus deposits his spirit. Verse 22, then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What's that about? Well, here's the cool thing. Jesus had told the disciples, "I'm taking off, you know? I'm going to take off, but I'm going to leave you a comforter, of the Holy Spirit, that's going to be with you in you all the time." John 16:5. It's best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Isn't that great news? When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know what you become? You become a temple, a habitat for the Holy Spirit to live. He moves in everything, man. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what's the Holy Spirit? It's God's power and presence in your life. A couple weeks ago, we were talking about in Philippians, um, the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me. This will lead to my deliverance. Paul, remember, chained to a praetorium guard. And he was saying that not only was the church at Philippi praying for him, but he said, the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me. Can I tell you a little secret? We cannot live as a follower of Christ in victory without that power that's inside of us. So often we short-circuit that power, you know? We think we have to try harder, you know? I have to work harder at being a Christian. No, you know, no, let, let the Holy Spirit live his life through you. Yeah. He's just waiting to do that. <sighs> Paul says in Ephesians 1, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of, of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same power, mighty power, that raised Christ from the dead. Isn't that amazing? That power that raised Jesus out of the, out of the tomb is resident in you and me. I know that's pretty sad, isn't it? <laughs> that he entrusts that mighty power in us. No, 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 no. That's how much he believes in you. Man, he is fired up about you. That's why he put that power in there. So there we have it. Now, why, why, why does this is kind of an interesting thing. Jesus, you know, he says, peace be with you and shows him his wounds and says, I'm going to be sending you. And then he breathes on him the Holy Spirit. What's that about? What's that about? You have to go to the next verse to find out why, one of the main reasons we need the Holy Spirit, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What's that about? Let's go back to Philippians 1 where Paul says, man, these, there, there's people that are preaching the gospel and they're, they're trying to destroy me out of jealousy and envy. What does Paul say? Let's blow them up. Let's send a SWAT team and take these no, He says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're trying to mess me up, if they're trying to destroy me. It doesn't matter as long as the good news is being spread, is getting out there. That's what counts. And that's what Jesus, he, he, he's, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they need to let things go. Now, we know that only God can forgive sins. But what's going on here is when we get sinned against, somebody offends us, somebody steals from us, somebody harms us, that's a sin against us. What Jesus is saying, you need to forgive that person. You need to let that go. Why? Because it doesn't matter in the big picture. In the big picture, it doesn't matter. You need to let that go. You need to forgive them and bless them in Jesus' name. Yeah. Let me take care of them. See, that's what he's saying here. And guess what? We can't do that on our own. Right. We're terrible at it. Yeah. Oh, I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait. No, no, it doesn't matter. See, doesn't matter. So we need to let it go. We need to. The- We need the Holy Spirit's power to help us forgive those offenses against us. How's that working out for you today? Good? Is it good? Yeah. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping me forgive those offenses. Number five, Jesus helps the doubters. So for all the doubters out there, you know, for all of us, You know, I was a doubter at one time. We've all been doubters. Some of you are doubting right now. Some of you are post doubters, you're pre doubters. That's just life. Verse 24 One of the 12 disciples, Thomas nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. He told them, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers in there and place my hand in the wound of his side. I'm going to go start a doubting club. That's what I'm going to do. That's where he was the last eight days. Because it comes back eight days later. (laughs) What was he doing? He He was starting a doubt club. Yeah, he was trying to recruit, you know, other followers of Christ. Let's go doubt together, you know. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus shows up. They didn't ask him to show up. He just shows up because he's got an appointment with Mr. Doubting himself. Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, notice he goes right to Thomas. You guys, peace be with you. Thomas, I'm here to deal with your doubt, man. You see what? We need to deal with our doubts. Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Come on, Thomas. Come on, come on. Go ahead, touch me. Put your finger in there. Do we see that picture? No. Oh, there it is. Go ahead, Thomas, put your finger in there. It's me. My Lord and my God, Thomas explained. Can you imagine? The doubts went away. (sighs) Vacuumed right out of them. Here's the cool thing. Why do you think this is in the Bible? Now, if I wrote the Bible, I would delete this part wouldn't you I'd have all the good stories all the successful stories but you know what God realizes human beings that we are real we we go through good times bad times and we struggle at times and there's times we doubt do you know why the story is in there because God wants you to know when you doubt it's okay it's all right He's giving you and I permission to doubt. Why? So we, we go ahead and put on the happy face when we think, you know, I'm doubting like crazy, but I don't want anybody to know because they're going to think less of me. No, 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 no. Can I say, we, we could put a sign out in front of Life Church and say, Doubters welcome. Right. I was a doubter once, I, I, I had to work through it. Many of you, and some of you are going through it right now, you know, the battle. Of doubting, but another reason why Thomas's story is is um, in in the Bible is to show that the projector needs to get turned on again because the story's not over. Because you know Thomas went to India as a missionary to present the gospel to establish churches in India. And he died a martyr for his faith. Turn the projector back on in your life. And I can tell you, man, there's more stories in the Bible. And here's the other thing. Some of the people that doubted the most became great in their faith. For example, Billy Graham. Do you know Billy Graham struggled with his faith? He, he, he was going to walk away from uh, speaking for Jesus because he, he, he was just going through this raw battle of doubt. But he put it on the table. And he said, Lord, I'm doubting, but I need your help. You know, I'm trusting you to walk me through the process. And there's many other people. People who had great doubt became great faith men and women of God. Yeah. I'm glad it's in the Bible, aren't you? Yes or no? Yeah, Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad it's in the Bible. Why? Because we can identify. Some of you, even in a month from now, are going to go through a, a doubt attack. And this will come back to your head thinking, oh yeah, I remember Thomas doubted. And Jesus, Jesus dealt with him. He says, my Lord and my God. Al Roper was a prominent Virginia attorney and the mayor of Norfolk. And he once uh, began a legal investigation into the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was going to prove that it was all a hoax. And he started with asking the question, can any intelligent person accept the resurrection story. Well, guess what? After examining the evidence at length, he came away asking a different question. Can any intelligent person deny the weight of this evidence? Let me tell you, there's been a lot of people trying to disprove the resurrection. And when they do their homework, they realize, man, there is so much evidence here. I'd be a fool not to believe, right? It takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a follower of Christ. Do you realize that? Yes or no? Yeah. <laughs> it's all right to talk in church, guys, really. Yeah, it's all right. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad Al Roper did that. And um, Lenya Heitzig was a confirmed atheist. She was raised in a home where her father was an atheist and uh, told her, told his kids that God did not exist. And um, he just had a real strong faith in positive thinking. That's, that's what he believed in. And Lenya said, if I wanted help, I needed to look no further than the end of my arm. In other words, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, it's all you positive thinking. Well, anyway, she said, by my college days, my, my arms were weighed down with the, by the baggage of my parents' divorce, my absentee father, and a stoically distant stepfather. And like a lot of college co-eds, I tried to cope with one-night stands, binge drinking, recreational drugs to fill the holes in my life. But at night when the lights were out and it was quiet, I was always left wondering, is there something more to life? She said, I'm not Wonder Woman, you know, I I don't possess any ability to rescue others, least of all myself from destructive behaviors. During my sophomore year in college, my dad had a born again experience after reading what? The Bible. (laughs) And he was reading the Bible to find some positive thinking in it. You know, was Jesus a positive thinker? Well, he put his faith in Christ. She said, his newfound faith in Christ, it, it, it threatened me, you know? Outwardly, I was mocking him, but inwardly, I, there was kind of a, a reversal of worldviews, you know, in my life. Like, I, I need to find out, you know, is this true? So she said, I took a, a class on non-Western religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, and other world religions. I interviewed classmates about their belief system while we stood around a keg, Of beer and smoking joints. I had family members trying to woo me back, you know, in their godless fold, you know, with words devoid of logic and comfort. And she said one night, just just watch how God is chasing after people, friends, just listen to this. She said, I'm walking down the street, I walk past a bookstore, and there's a book in the window from Billy Graham called How to Be Born Again. It was like the book was calling my name. So I go in, I buy the bag, I throw it in my beach bag, grabbed a six-pack of beer, drove to the dunes, the sand dunes with my friends. We're going to party on the beach. They went into the waves, and I sat down with my blanket and opened the book. And something hit me on chapter 3. Does God really speak to us? Man, it just went against my scientific belief in evolution. And Billy proposed that God is a creator who speaks through nature, whether in a crying infant or a song of a bird. Yeah, right, I blurted out. I kind of arrogantly pointed my finger, you know, God, if he's out there, you know, challenging him. Inadvertently, I offered my first prayer, God, if you rule over nature, if you're sovereign, even over the instincts of a bird, then make that bird chirping in the distance fly into the tree next to my blanket. Well, Fluttering toward me, the small gray swallow landed on the branch above my head. Closing the book superstitiously, I thought, maybe God does exist. (laughs) Maybe he created me for a purpose. Billy recommended you read the Bible because it contains the very words of God. Reading it introduced me to God's great love and his ability to provide each of us with an abundant life full of significance. Man, I devoured the pages in the Bible. I couldn't put it down. I was reading it and I was transformed when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. He forgave my sins, man. He gave me a purpose for living. Who would believe that a bird in the Bible would one day lead me to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ? Hmm? Good question. You see, God's coming after, He's coming after us coming after you. He's coming after me. Why? Because he loves you. You know what Lania's doing today? She's in full-time ministry. Been at it for years. Living for the Lord. Telling others about this good news. How about you this morning, friend? Don't you think it's time? Jesus, you know, has been coming after you because he loves you. He went to the cross. He paid for your sin debt in full so that you can put your faith and trust in him and say, Jesus, I believe you are who you said you were. Just like the disciples had a, yeah, that's you, Jesus. You get holes, yeah, that's you. You died for me, Jesus. You paid for my sin dead in full, and I believe you did that, Lord. And today I'm inviting you into my life, Lord. Just like he walked through the door where the disciples, he's gonna walk right through your core right here and move in. And become your spiritual leader. And so, Lord, thank you for forgiving me of all my sins. All my sins. My sacred sins. Those harboring sins, Lord. you, You forgive them all. And because of that, Jesus, I'm going to live for you the rest of my life through the power of your spirit. Yeah, that's what it is. And if you're watching online or you're here this morning, you can go to... LifeChurchMH.com, there's a link for the next steps. Scroll down and there's a Put Your Faith in Jesus link. There's two videos there, Created by Christ and for Christ. Let me tell you, it's a great video. The second one is You Are Loved As You Are. Tim Tebow does that one. And then below there, there's a What's Next form. Fill it out and we'll get back to you. We have material in the foyer that you can take, friend, if you put your faith in Christ or if you're going to doubt and leave today, listen, that's okay. But I can tell you this, Jesus is not going to give up on you that's right. because he loves you. So, Father, we thank you today that if we declare with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, Lord, we will be saved. We know, Lord, that you tell us that you came to take away the sin of the world. Man, how liberating that is. And I pray for all of us today, Lord. May the Easter story not become ho hum to us, but may it be a real source of encouragement that you never give up on us, Lord. And today, some of us are recommitting our faith in Jesus Christ because we've been wandering. We've allowed life to push Jesus away and life has become a priority. Lord, forgive us for that. There's going to be a resurrection in our soul this morning because we're recommitting ourselves to you, Lord. We're turning that projector back on because we know that you're not finished with us. And so we thank you for this great Easter message of hope. I pray your blessing on each person watching and every person in this room today in Jesus' name, amen.
1: I love having to do pre-marriage counseling with couples, usually once a year. And, And I go through it and it's a refresher for me and it sharpens me and it tunes me up. And I hear the same thing every year for years and years and years. And somehow it goes from the front of my mind to way back in the back of my mind and then it actually just falls out the back of my head. And then I watch that and and it's right back there again. And um, in fact, I was thinking about this, um, the word of God today for marriages and and thought about uh, a mechanic and thought about uh, a marriage tune-up for a car or a truck. And it might look fine on the outside, the vehicle, but we need to be intentional about scheduling maintenance and tune-ups, oil changes every 3,000 miles, so forth. With our van, we conduct a maintenance check to identify if anything is wrong, if it's out of alignment, deteriorated anything, negatively affecting the vehicle's performance. Ever so often, we conduct a tune-up to correct issues, to enhance the vehicle's Performance And today we're going to take a look into God's word for a tune-up for marriage. And my goal, uh, it's not my goal. Uh, uh, first, I'm going to offend the men. And then I'm going to offend the women. And by the time we're done, no one will like Travis. <laughs> Except my wife. She's a good lady. <laughs> Whether you're married or not. Or whether you desire to be or not, God's word has much for us to learn about the entity, its purposes, its bearing on our relationship to the Lord and to other people. And so, um, say, Travis, fix my spouse. Can't do it. <laughs> Thanks, Lawrence. I got two laughs. That's awesome. That's We're off to a great start. Hey, you can track uh, some sermon notes here, if you're watching online, these are available for download. And uh, just a lot of scripture references on there. So when we're all done, you can check it out for yourself and let God speak to you directly and uh, one-on-one, and that'd be awesome. Two, let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. I thank you that you created marriage, Lord, and it was good. And it was a good idea. I thank you, Lord, that you desire to be involved in our marriage. You don't wanna be distant. You don't wanna be the third wheel. You wanna be the glue and the strength and the life and the vitality of our marriages. Lord, speak to us today, Lord. Lord, not just behavioral change, Lord, but Lord, heart renovation, Lord, new thoughts for our minds to embrace. Transform us, Lord, by your power, the power of your word, and your Holy Spirit that we depend upon, and we invite to be Lord and King of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> God created marriage. Why? Well, here's some reasons. We'll just go quickly and briefly. Reproduction. Genesis 128, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful fruitful. And multiply, fill the earth, and govern it. We're doing pretty good. Lots of kids here at uh, at Life Church reproduction. Second bullet point: companionship. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him." Companionship. Next bullet point: pleasure. You can read Song of Solomon on your own. I'm not going to go there today. Plenty of examples. (laughs) Next one, teamwork. Teamwork. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 11. The principle found therein is that if one falls down, another can help them up. If one is cold, the other can keep them warm. There's an increased productivity that happens through marriage. Marriage is good. Next bullet point, holiness. I could have... Put a ton of verses there. Instead, what popped into my mind was Gary Thomas. He did an entire series called The Sacred Marriage. And throughout this eight-week series, or however many weeks it is, he says, he asked the question throughout. He says, what if God's primary intent for your marriage isn't to make you happy, but holy? Now, I think there is happiness to be had in marriage. But an interesting question that he poses, where better and how better for your marriage? sin to be exposed than through and by your 24-7 spouse. They're good at seeing it. How else do we learn how to forgive and love if not our 24-7 spouse? How are we to develop kindness, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control than within the laboratory of marriage? It's a good laboratory for making us more like Christ if we allow it to do so. We become more like Jesus if we allow that. And if we want more help, we can have kids. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe write down in your notes, to make me holy as a reason for marriage. Maybe that's a different perspective, something that you haven't thought of. You think marriage is to make me happy. No, maybe more so is to help us rely on God, become more like Christ in our character, refining. So all these are good examples, um, great aspects of and reasons for marriage, but there is even a larger reason or maybe an encompassing reason for marriage, and that is, next bullet point, bigger picture. Throughout Scripture, marriage paints a picture of our relationship with God. Marriage provides may be the greatest example and opportunity for the world to observe and understand what union with God should or could be like. It involves trust and faithfulness, forgiveness, reward. It's accepting God's agape love, unconditional love. When you read the Bible, you see that God often positions himself and refers to himself as the husband. And the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, are often referred to or seen as his wife. In Isaiah 54, 5, it says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. God desires to have union, unity, oneness, desire to have that with Israel, with Judah, provided for them, protected, nourished Israel. Yet Israel and the nation of Judah, they always played the part of the harlot, foolish, rebellious. Hosea 5.3 says, "'I know what you are like, O Ephraim. "'You cannot hide yourself from me, O Israel. You have left me as a prostitute leaves her husband. You are utterly defiled." And if you have a chance to read the book of Hosea, uh, the prophet Hosea and his life, it was very symbolic. And uh, the book is written to show us, give us a picture of what the human race is in um, how the relationships looks between the human race and God, yeah. the Father. Uh, in Hosea, he actually purchases a woman out of the sex trade to free her and becomes offers her um, his love as a husband, the, all of his wealth and all of his benefits and his resources and his care and protection and provision in saving her from this sex slave. Um, and, and she goes back into it again, and he purchases her out again, redeems her again. And powerful, um, but throughout the Old Testament, all the prophets, they call out to wayward Israel to no avail, and yet we do see and we understand uh, clearly what was meant to be because there's moments in the Old Testament the beauty of when Israel did trust the Lord and did rejoice in his presence and trust in his promises when they allowed themselves to receive his love and his goodness into their lives and they're dancing with tears Uh, rejoicing. Um, And so we see what it could and should look like. The prophets tried to reason with the nation of Israel, with Judah, but they also did something else. They prophesied of a coming Messiah, of a Savior who would take upon himself the punishment of their sin, who would give them his righteousness and his spirit to live inside their hearts. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, such a powerful prophecy in the Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. That was the Mosaic covenant, the 10 commandments. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God sent us a husband, the whole human race, a husband in the person of Jesus Christ. We're invited into the affectionate, passionate, unconditional, unending love of God. Through the cross, God says, I love you. He says, I will be your savior. Yeah. I will be your husband. Allow me to forgive your sin. Take on my name. And we become one with God when we, when we move from self-reliance into a God-dependence. We accept his love and leadership, his provision, protection, his mission. We abide in his mercies and his grace. That's the awesome love of God. In walking with him, he gives us a new name. He begins to give us new desires, new thoughts, new strength for each day. In growing to know him and love him more, he uses us to be a blessing on the earth, further his beautiful kingdom There's a bigger picture that that marriage shows us, and it points to God and his desire and the union that we are to have with him. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. First question this morning, how well does your marriage reflect the glory of God? Because it is meant to do so. So let's start with the men, right? Maintenance check for men. Let's look, we're gonna try to find, it's gonna be hard. We're gonna find an example of a man in the Bible who needed a marriage maintenance check. We don't have to look too far. We're going to start with Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Genesis 2, <clears throat> 16 through 18. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Is that pretty clear instruction? Okay, now look what happens in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Notice that God gives that instruction to Adam, not Eve. And it's not till after the instruction is given that God creates Eve in verse 18. Now let's look at Genesis 3, verse 6. And, of course, the forbidden tree, um, we find a serpent at that tree tempting Eve and twisting God's word and the instructions. It says, you will not surely die, questioning, telling her, eat of it, because in the day that you eat, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God himself. So verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Husband with her. Husband with her. Most scholars believe that Adam was standing right there when that happened. She didn't have to go look for him. She turned to him, her husband with him, and the idea being that he was either very passive or worse, probably worse, thinking, if she eats and lives, then I will have some too. If she eats and dies, I'll still be okay. Why wasn't Adam standing between his wife and the forbidden tree? Why didn't he grab the serpent by the neck and rip its head off? Whatever the case, he allowed his wife to be deceived. He does not nurture her or protect her. Subpoint one maintenance checks. Adam failed his wife. Did not nurture his wife or protect her from harm, but he used her. And guess what happened when Adam and Eve bit into the fruit? They effectively severed their relationship with God, their spirit died. As a result, disease, decay, death entered the world. Instead of trusting and obeying God, they decided to call their own shots. And now we all know what the results of that are. In Romans 5, 12, it says, therefore, just as through one man, how come it doesn't say one man and one woman or one woman? Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And we see it, and the world's intention, and disunity, and all creation groans, and people are born with cancer, and, and genetically we're messed up, and we're far from God's ideal, and from what he's instructed us to be, culturally and as a world. Genesis three, nine through twelve, <clears throat> then the Lord God. So after Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden, they hid themselves, or attempted to hide themselves, and clothe themselves. They have all this shame and guilt now. There's there's the knowledge that they received. Now they know that what life is like apart from trusting God yeah. and calling and trying to be God. Now it's shame and condemnation and guilt. Because why? Because they're guilty. Then the Lord called to Eve. Nope. Then the Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? And of course, God knew where he was, right? The kid with the cookie crumbs all over his mouth. Did you eat a cookie? (laughs) God knows he ate the cookie. And God knows where he is, right? So he said, verse 10, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Why do you have shame and guilt now? You're not innocent anymore and pure. Now you're, you have a defiled mind. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, yes, I did. And I'm sorry. No. No. Verse 12, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So, and I like, Lawrence always points this out for us. He he says, he blames two people. The woman whom you gave to me, let's put the fault here and here. She gave me of the tree and I ate. So not only does Adam fail to protect his wife when God confronts him, with the sin of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he, bl- he blames both Eve and God Himself in Genesis 12. Subpoint number, or next subpoint Adam blamed his wife for his faults. Instead of playing the man card, he played the victim card. And that is a tendency for men today. We fail and then we blame, and we don't take responsibility. We're passive, and then we reject responsibility instead of accepting it. We don't lead courageously. Question for the men. Men, how well are you nurturing, protecting, providing for your wife, physically, mentally, spiritually? How well are you doing that? If you do not have a believing wife, you're still responsible to God for how you nurture and care for her. She should meet Jesus through your interactions, you know? And here's how, by use of a biblical tune-up for men. Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Man, I'm just gonna pause there. Jesus died for our sins and he gave us his righteousness. Clothed clothed us in that. Gave his life. And this is what a husband is to do and to be for his wife. A husband, uh, that she should be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I give myself chocolate. I work out even though I don't want to, but I'm taking care of myself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. How did Christ love the church he gave himself for her? While being nailed to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Number one, husbands, husband, love your wife. That love there. So in English, we use the word love for everything. I love donuts. I love my wife. I love the bears. <laughs> but in, in the Greek, there's many different words that's used for love and very purposefully, and it makes a lot more sense. The word used here is agape love. That's unconditional love. It's not just the affectionate love or the passionate love, those types of love. It's the love that is unconditional it is a love that is characterized by action and choice, not by feelings. Feelings are fun sometimes. When they're good, then they're fun. Feelings are fickle. Yeah. They come and go. Feelings do not at all factor into the definition of love found in these verses with the word agape. Listen to this. You don't fall into love and out of love. People, you hear that, you know, I fell in love or we fell in love. No, 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 no. You you fall into infatuation, certainly. You fall in and out of lust, sure. But agape love is a covenant love based upon commitment and demonstrated through action. Nothing to do initially or primarily with feelings. They're a byproduct of the commitment itself and the action and the choice. That is a different definition than our culture understands love to be today. Love is all about feelings. And now I love you, and now tomorrow I don't love you. Then a couple weeks later, you're wearing a nice dress and I love you again. (laughs) And then you yell at me and now I don't love you. So God's love is agape love. Husband, do not put yourself ahead of your wife. Do not run off on your career path at the expense of your wife. Do not make her your slave, but serve her. Do not take advantage of your wife, but nurture her as Christ nurtures the church. You sacrifice yourself for her on a daily basis. You commit to presenting her before the Lord. You commit uh, your success, your comfort, your position is not more important than the spiritual, mental, physical well-being of your wife. You're responsible to God for how you love your wife, and all the ladies say, "Amen," very quietly. Yes. Mm-hmm. We'll ponder that a little bit. We'll hide those words in our heart. <laughs> <All> right. <clears throat> As Christ loved the church, Genesis two eighteen. This is good. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And he knew that when he made Adam. I will make a helper who is just right for him. That word helper, you know the other times it's used in scripture? It's used for God. It's used for Jesus. It's used for the Holy Spirit. That word helper, God is our helper. Question, guys, can you be humble enough to be helped by your wife? Many of us have adopted the wrong perspective, but but here's a secret for men. My wife is not an obstacle to success, but the road to success I can get mad and I can resent my wife's correction and her advice or I can embrace her perspectives as God's help in my life. That requires us not to be so prideful. If you have a godly wife, you have received a gift from God, ask for her perspective and include her in the decisions, especially the big decisions. Proverbs 19.14, fathers can give their sons an inheritance of houses and wealth, but only the Lord can give an understanding wife. Proverbs 18.22, the man who finds a wife finds a treasure and he receives favor from the Lord. Can you be humble enough to be helped by your wife? Yeah, how does, the Bible instruct, how does the Bible instruct husbands to love their wives? We could probably make a good list, but there's two encompassing ways that stand out uh, primary that we find in 1 Peter 3, 7. So we're gonna look at those. <clears throat> 1 Peter 3, 7 says, "'Husbands, likewise, dwell with them.'" And we'll see what precedes this in the next section. Husband, likewise, dwell with them, your wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife, as to the weaker vessel. Girls say, "What? What the weaker?" We'll we'll explain that a little. And being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Hmm. That's an interesting subtag on the end of that. That your prayers may not be hindered. Weaker vessel does not constitute a lesser value or an inequality before God, but rather an acknowledgement of roles and responsibility. Here's a picture of an eye. There it is. There's a little kid's eye. Child's eye. Tell me, should that, should the pupil protect the eyelid? Or should the eyelid protect the pupil? Mhm. You do not protect the eyelid with your pupil. No, the eyelid protects the pupil. The eyelid is not more valuable than the eyeball. And speaking of weaker vessels, same with God's design of male, female, there's physical and sociological differences that are to be acknowledged, not blurred. Our culture wants to blur them. Yeah. Equality does not mean Sameness. Sameness is to strip each role of its unique beauty, splendor, and strength. The verse goes on to say, um, back to First Peter 3, 7, it says, being heirs together with the grace of life. So God's salvation, his forgiveness, his mercies, his graces, his blessings, his treasures, his rewards are for both man and woman. Men and women do not think that man is of greater value than woman or that woman is of greater value than men. Is Christ inferior to God? No. Christ is one with God as woman is with man. So what is one way that we can show love to our wife? Well, from this passage, A, give understanding. Give understanding. Husbands likewise dwell with them with Understanding, how well do you understand your wife right now, today, on Sunday, March 28th, 2021? What are her current thoughts, concerns, desires, aspirations, needs? I would encourage men and encourage myself to ask, How have you been doing over the past couple weeks? Here's some practical questions, guys. If you need some questions, you don't know what to say to your wife, here you go. How have you been doing over the past couple weeks? What has been on your mind? How has your body been feeling? Physically, how are you feeling? How is your relationship with the kids, with your friends, with your parents? What has God been speaking to you through his word? Are there any parts of scripture that you find exciting or challenging or confusing Be aware of your wife. Study your wife. And Robert Lewis in Men's Fraternity talks about the no-look pass, of knowing and seeing and studying your wife in a way that you know when she is, uh, where you can bless her. And he talks about the no-look pass in basketball being a thing of beauty. And so it made me think of my wife. I know that my wife likes a non-fat, caffeine-free double caramel coconut latte. (laughs) And it's very infrequent, but on a couple occasions, I've surprised her with one of those, and that was a no-look pass, it was awesome. Uh, Understand your wife, know what she likes, right? Know what she likes, know when she is stressed, know when she needs a break, know when she needs encouragement. We're not to be so busy. I mean, that's our, our first priority in loving our wife, understanding her. B, give honor. Husbands that belittle their wives may get a laugh in public, but they do not have great marriages. Only joking, there's power in words and hurt over time. You know, even if joking, those words have power. How about leaving your wife in the dust when you arrive somewhere together? The man walks ahead of her. I've done this with Cassie. I walk into the church, and I'm doing stuff, and then she's dragging four or five, six kids in and carrying the car seat. What in the world? That's not honoring your wife. Honor your wife. Show appreciation and verbalize it. Who else is going to acknowledge some of her daily sacrifices that no one sees and her contributions? Tell her why she's so significant with your words and actions. A story goes of, um, uh, of an eight cow wife. I don't know if you've heard that one. Eight cows, all right, in uh, the Pacific on an island. Um, the currency was usually livestock and, um, and you would bargain with a, a father for his daughter's hand in marriage. And typically, the going rate was two, three cows. Um, a great, amazing, beautiful, wise, smart wife might go for four cows, five cows. And, um, and that's, that's how it was done on the island. Well, a guy comes, a trader, um, a tr- sea trader and so forth. And he's there. And he's a good man, good character. And he works among the people there. And, um, and there is a girl, Mahana. And her dad despises her and treats her like garbage. And her shoulders are slouched over. Her hair is a mess. Um, the villagers, people, make fun of her because she's so ugly. And she walks and holds that identity. And at one point, um, we hear of uh, the man Johnny Lingo offering the father eight cows for her. And he And that becomes, and he takes her, and they leave the island. And that becomes the running joke on the island. The great trader, Johnny Lingo, who spent eight cows on Mahana. Pretty funny. Until a year later, they come back to the island, or the father goes, and somehow they meet. And he does not recognize her. She is the most beautiful woman and courageous and confident woman on the island because she has been treasured by Johnny Lingo, and he's placed that price upon her. Yeah. And uh, it's a fascinating fascinating story, and it was made into a movie. Um, anyway, encourage guys, if you're going to propose, don't have a cheap proposal. Right. The message is, this is how much you mean to me. Mm-hmm. The value that Christ places on us is big. Yeah. Yeah. And we can't miss the end of this verse on uh, 1 Peter 3, that your prayers might not be hindered. First things first with God. Your faith and obedience begins with how you treat your wife. And we, and we pray to God, God, I need your help with my boss. Or God, I need discernment in business. Or I need a financial breakthrough. Lord, my body, I need a physical healing in my body. I can't, Lord, I want to experience your presence in your life. God, I need your peace. All good, all good things to ask for, but it's like asking for the keys before we've yet learned to walk when God might have a different priority list and timetable of what is best for us, and it starts with our wife. It starts with our wife. Look at Malachi 2, 13 through 16. There's, there may be, well, a, a ceiling between you and God. Not that God doesn't want to answer those prayers, but, but first things first, and God has told us, what to be faithful in and and something to do. And we're just, we're on on another wavelength. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Talking about them petitioning the Lord. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. This is Old Testament material. Yet she is your companion and the wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. You do not deal treacherously. So... There's a picture. Um, men, you do not want to fail to nurture your wife. You do not want to blame your wife for your faults. You want to love her as Christ loved the church, and two ways that we can do so, according to Scripture, is by understanding her and honoring her. And all the women say, amen. Amen. Guys, your turn. Um, now it's your turn. Uh, women, now it's your turn. Maintenance check for women. All right. What is something that women have to look out for with a maintenance check? They hate me already. Oh! Genesis three sixteen. Here we go. God told Eve in the garden, this was after the fallout, after God held Adam responsible and Adam blamed his wife. He said to Eve in verse 16 that your desire will be for... Or to control him, man, but he will rule over you. We don't have to ask for a show of hands, but um, have any of the married women in here ever tried to control their husband? And how does that work? Does that, yeah. (laughs) So here's the disclaimer Uh, Not saying that you have to speak the truth to your husband, not saying that you endorse foolish or sinful behavior. Not saying that you enable him in any unhealthy addictions or habits. There's a disclaimer for the this section. But a woman who attempts to control her husband will either be guilty of overstepping and using her husband, or will at best have a very frustrating marriage ever trying to compete andor change her husband. Let's look at a wife who missed all of the scheduled maintenance checks, and her name is Jezebel, right? Poster, poster girl. A little background on Jezebel, 19th century. The marriage of Jezebel to Ahab was a political move and alliance between the Phoenicians and the Israelites. International arranged marriage was common practice to promote peace and prosperity. Peace treaties, trade agreements, Yet God had instructed the Israelites throughout the Mosaic Covenant not to intermarry with those of heathen nations who are not dedicated to Yahweh, to God, Jehovah. But Ahab, an Israelite king, he married a Phoenician idol worshiper of Baal and Ashtoreth, a woman without any love or allegiance to God. Take note, singles, do not marry someone that does not have Jesus Christ as first place in their life. Right. Yeah. Number one, Jezebel controlled, overstepped, used her husband. First Kings nineteen two. She was a headstrong, self-willed, domineering, answering for her husband, leading her husband in every decision. Maybe through seduction, maybe manipulation, maybe it was shaming, whatever the method, Jezebel controlled and overstepped her husband. She got him to build a house of worship for Baal beside the palace in Samaria. Also, uh, Ashtoreth, that is the idol of the fertility goddess. She brought 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtoreth from Phoenicia, housing them in the palace. Fed them in royal style. Their duties were to promote the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth throughout the land. She didn't stop there. She looked to stamp out every remnant of Jehovah worship of Yahweh and to kill every true prophet of God. She had to have things completely her way, and she almost succeeded, except God used a man named Elijah to speak truth to the nation and he did signs and wonders miracles through Elijah to help bring clarity to the people in that time we could use that now in the united states huh yeah and and one specific um at one point uh, amazing sign and wonder that god provided for the nation they saw it ahab saw it and um and uh and so Ahab is convinced uh, of the truth in that moment that God is God and Baal and Astra are not. And yet he tells his wife, when he tells his wife, we see who leads in the relationship. Here it is, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 2. And Ahab told Jezebel that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the evil prophets with the sword that were there at this event. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Why doesn't Ahab stop her when he knew the truth? So let the gods do to me and more also if I will not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. Why didn't Ahab tell her no or or stop the messenger or send reinforcements to Elijah? So Ahab is passive. He's controlled by his wife. He bears responsibility. But Jezebel was a bear. She was a bear. Did you know that it was specifically because of Jezebel that Ahab was noted as the worst king Israel ever had? Look at 1 Kings 21, 25. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel his wife stirred him up. Number two, Jezebel incited her husband. The Greek word for stirred up provides definition is instigated, provoked, it has kind of the idea of poking with a pin just continually poking and prodding. Proverbs twenty one nineteen. it's better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. That would have been better for Ahab. Yeah. Yeah, he should have never married her in the first place, yeah. So we spoke earlier of men receiving help from their wives, right? Men need to be open and receiving help from their wife, not taking offense when she offers advice and perspective. This was a challenge given to men. Equally important is it for wives to discern between what is needed, what what is indeed helpful to communicate. And if it is, when and how it should be communicated. Timing can make a big difference. Proverbs 14.1 says, A wise woman builds her home, but a foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. Jezebel did not help her husband. She was not a helper at all. She controlled him. She incited him. She tore down her family, and she tore down the nation at the same time. Now, there are good ways that God instructs women to help and influence their husbands, and we're gonna look at them. But here's the question for women. Wives, do you control and incite your husbands, or do you help your husbands? If you you do not have a believing husband, you are still responsible to God for how you help them. And here's how. So here's the biblical tune-up for women. Ephesians, man, and time is flying. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, and verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Subpoint Wife, respect your husband. God has a uh, a chain of command and a responsibility that he places upon man. That submission is not that of being a doormat, of letting your husband beat you up. It's not like the uh, UFC fighter attempting to force their opponent into submission. The biblical understanding of submission is is that of entrusting oneself into the hands of another. And it does involve trust and vulnerability and deference, but it is in keeping with the ultimate responsibility that one has under Christ. And that's the key. In accordance with God's chain of authority, the husband's authority is is limited. It has limitations. You have a picture of a bank robber up there. If a husband tells his wife to rob a bank, there is a higher authority that is already pronounced, do not steal. It's very objective. Biblical submission is a notable, a noble and beautiful thing. It's an agreement with God. If you're a strong-willed woman, please marry a stronger man. <laughs> Someone you can look up to attitudinally, sociologically, physically. If you're a single woman who will never submit to a husband, stay single, right? You have that right. If you're already married, too late. (laughs) God is now committed to helping you grow in grace. How does a woman show respect to her husband? The Bible speaks of many ways, but just two this morning. Back to 1 Peter chapter 3, preceding verses, it says, In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself. Instead, or primarily, with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God. They accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right, without fear of what your husbands might do. A, give lead, give lead. Give your husband the lead according to God's design and instruction. Accept the authority of your husband and not because he has all the answers and not because he does everything right. Why? Because in marriage, God designed that the two individuals should become united into one entity. The two should become one flesh and a house divided against itself will fail. It won't stand. Any one flesh that has two heads is usually called a monster, (laughs) right? Yeah. I just got to cut out a lot of stuff here. Um, A secret for women, God did not create the husband as an obstacle to keep a wife from purpose and fulfillment. Rather, godly submission to one's husband is the road of purpose and fulfillment in God's plan. Question for wives, speaking to wives, do you get angry or bitter at your husband's undertakings or can you embrace your husband's vision as God's care? Can you be humble enough to be led I totally get why a woman would want to control and usurp her husband. Who wants to take the position of vulnerability dependent upon someone whom they are not to control? And yet that is a picture of the love and the respect that God has with us and we with him. B, give example. First Peter said, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They'll be won over. They'll be won over by getting up in their face and yelling. No, no, it says, by observing your pure and relevant lives. The example speaks of beauty that comes from within, an unfading beauty of gentle, quiet spirit, which is precious to God. Yeah. How does a wife change her husband for good? By praying for him, by her example. Cassie, can you come up here for a second? Husbands are supposed to love their wives. They're supposed to lead their wives. And they are supposed to understand their wives. And they are supposed to honor their wives. And they are not to fail their wives. Although we do and we will. We're not to blame our wives. Women are to respect their husbands. They are to serve or submit to their husbands. And the ways they do that are through, also through um, honoring and by their example. And so here's a picture of what this looks like. Let's step up here. So, my wife, I love you so much. I love you.
0: My husband, I respect you.
1: No. <laughs> my wife, I give my life for you, my wife.
0: My husband, I, I submit to your authority.
1: <laughs> I will lay down my life for you. I will serve you, my wife.
0: My husband, I honor you.
1: My wife. <laughs> That's an idea of biblical marriage. And it puts responsibility not on you to control the other person. She's not to control me. I don't control her. I lead, and she has free will. You know, But I lead in love and in service to her, giving of my life for her. And in the sense, um, she also respects and she helps. She's my helper. And I receive that help. I should receive it. So thanks, darling. (audioズ) ( linen) Lots of different types of marriages out there. People try the 50-50 partnership marriage. How, how, how well do partnerships, uh, how well do they do in business, in the business world? 90% or more fail, right? That's just a constant tension, chaos. Here's a final, uh, so this is a biblical view of marriage. Here's a final point, uh, not on your outline. Jesus was, was not compelled by duty and obligation, but by his love for the Father and for us. We are not a ball and chain to God. Right. Hebrews 12:2, it says, For the joy sent before him, he endured the cross. Jesus had a love and he had a joy. He had an eternal perspective. And he lovingly gave himself for the joy set before him. Colossians 3:23, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Men love your wife as unto the Lord women respect and love your husband as unto the Lord. Psalm 100 verse two, serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. I conclude with this, there may be some benefit in serving your husband or wife out of duty and sacrifice more than by not serving at all, but way more reward in this life and in the next if, if we serve as unto the Lord. For the joy set before us. If our service is contingent upon the response that we get from our spouse, we won't do very well, often be disappointed. But if our service is contingent upon pleasing the Lord, we will be able to love and respect with perseverance and gladness, knowing that God is proud and will reward us. We can have strong families at Life Church because we depend on the Lord and because we serve one another. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, for the gift of marriage and the blessings inerrant. Such a beautiful thing, Lord. Lord, I pray for husbands, Lord, that they would be connected to you because you're the source of life. For them, Lord, and you'd fill them with love for their wife. You would fill them with a love, Lord, an agape love for their wife, a sacrificial love, a love, Lord. You'd fill them with joy, Lord, in serving their wife, purpose, Lord, fulfillment, Lord, in helping their wife become all that you have for them to be. Lord, I pray for wives that they might receive greater revelation of your love, God, that their identity would be anchored in your love. I thank you, God, for your care for them. I pray for the wives here, Lord, that they would grow in confidence in their calling, that you would put inside them, Lord, a great love, Lord, for their husbands and the type of love, Lord, that you describe, within your word. Lord, bless the marriages of Life Church and the families, Lord. May may we be an example, Lord, in this community. And may we experience, Lord, your pride and your blessings and your favor in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.